Hi, welcome to InSync, the podcast that explores the history and impact of some of your favorite music moments in TV and film. I'm Rachel Brodsky. And I'm Aviv Rubenstein. Basically, all music lovers of a certain age can point to a little scene 1995 slacker comedy called Empire Records as a pivotal viewing experience in their musical journey. I can certainly say this is the case for me. Me too. Empire Records culminates with a memorable rooftop performance featuring future Academy Award winner Renee Zellweger and a little-known alt-rock band called Coyote Shivers. How could such a little-seen movie and a little-known band have led to such a memorable and seminal needle drop? And how did this strange collaboration even come to be? All this and the strange story of Liv Tyler's stepfather on this episode of NSYNC. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify's there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome again to InSync, a podcast that explores your favorite music moments in TV and film. I'm making Aviv, my co-host, laugh. What are you laughing at, Aviv? It was just the, it was just the hello. 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 <laughs> hello. Still working on my greeting. I'm your host, Rachel Brodsky. Hi, Rachel. I'm your co-host. And neighbor, my downstairs neighbor. Yes, I'm looking up at you right now, and we're very excited to talk about this week's film needle drop which is empire records and specifically the song sugar high by coyote shivers yes um happy rex manning day aviv oh happy rex manning day to you although technically rex manning day is in april but um this is like our de facto rex manning day yeah april 9th or something i think it's april 8th if my my googling and research you're you're pretty much you're pretty much on point (laughs) I was close. I was close. Right. I think anytime a podcast or article or anything like devotes itself to a discussion about Empire Records, it just becomes another Rex Manning day. Correct. So I'm assuming that some people, based on the popularity of this movie or lack thereof, don't know what the hell we're talking about, don't know what Rex Manning day is. Can you 
Rachel, tell us what the hell is going on. I can. Empire Records was a film that came out in 1995. It's a coming-of-age comedy, and it's loosely about a group of record store employees trying to save their store, Empire Records, an indie store, from being sold to a giant corporate music record store conglomerate. Think Virgin Megastore, except in the movie, Mm -hmm. they just call it Music Town. That's a very loose... (laughs) Music Town. (laughs) That's like the loosest possible description of what Empire Records is about. Because I think if you watch Empire Records 30-odd years after its release... Oh, my God. It becomes clear that it's not so much a movie as it is like a collection of silly vignettes with really quotable (laughs) one-liners and a killer, absolutely killer 90s soundtrack. A lot of actors that would go on to become extremely famous, but at the time, we're talking like Renee Zellweger and Liv Tyler, I think, in particular. Oscar nominee. Mm Mm-hmm. The Empire Records is kind of like The little music movie that could, it flopped upon release, but it has gone on to achieve major cult classic status for both the film and its soundtrack, although I believe the soundtrack was much more successful upon its initial release. So a little bit about the movie and the, the, as Rachel mentioned, the loose plot of the movie. So we are of the generation and of the industry who base their entire personality on having seen this movie two million times. But the rough plot of the movie is a employee of Empire Records named Lucas goes to Atlantic City, question mark, or Las Vegas, instead of depositing... Yeah, AC. It is Atlantic City because the movie actually takes place in Delaware, um, although I think in it was Delaware. Carolina. Mm-hmm. What an amazing poll considering no movies take place in Delaware. Um, <laughs> and he goes to AC instead of depositing the day's hall at the bank, loses all of his money, and his boss, Joe, is already on the brink of losing the store to Music Town, and this seems to be the death nail. Meanwhile, there is a, would we say, David Hasselhoff-esque kind of faded star named Rex Manning who's coming to the store to do like a signing which just adds a bunch of additional hijinks as well as like uh raises the stakes for Joe absolutely beating Lucas's ass for for losing all this money. Yes, yeah, so the the movie uh, ostensibly well it takes so it takes place over the course of one day, I guess like one evening and into the next day. And that day happens to be mm-hmm. Rex Manning Day because Rex Manning, played by Maxwell Caulfield, who, fun fact, um, plays the male lead in Grease 2, one of my all-time favorite movies. Um, <laughs> I have never seen Grease nor Grease 2. I'm sorry, what? Aviv, that's another... I know, we'll talk about I that know. Later. <laughs> And another and another time we'll talk about why Grease Two is so much better than Grease. But um, isn't Michelle Pfeiffer in Grease Two? 
Oh, he, she absolutely is. Very early role. She kills it. She wants a cool oh. rider. And Maxwell Caulfield is her cool rider. <laughs> um, but Maxwell Caulfield plays this kind of over the hill, like you said, pop star. I always kind of thought of him as like a Davy Jones character. Is that who it was mm-hmm. from? Do you remember? In David Cassidy. Brady? David Cassidy. Yeah. From, from the Partridge you. family. Yeah, from the Partridge family. I knew family. exactly. I as soon of- as you said, I was like, yep, that's him. Yeah, okay. I don't know why I said the other name, but I always kind of thought of him as like, you know how in in the Brady Bunch 90s movie, they actually get Marsha's high school dance and then everyone starts dancing like the 70s and all like the the like That is Davy Jones. the stage. Yes, I see. Yeah. Okay, yes. Yeah. So although Rex Manning as a character, well, I mean, he clearly he's past his peak. But a couple of the female employees of Empire Records are are just very excited by his coming to the store for um, a record signing. And what's interesting about the Rex Manning character is that, like, the whole like the movie is is clearly like like many Gen X classics is is very concerned with like aging and like corporate versus indie and. Rex Manning is kind of like this weird, like, catch-all for, like, where you fall on that spectrum. Corporate, yeah. Yeah, according to, like, your age and maybe your gender and, like, how you feel about someone who represents, like, the sort of skis that Rex Manning turns out to be. And he's just so not cool, right? This movie has a lot of things to say and discuss about being cool i forgot about warren but like the coolest thing that you could do or be is a record store of of an indie record store record store employee and i think that that's probably still the case now though it's not like virgin megastore is gonna put anybody out of business these days more like amazon or you know whatever else spotify yeah yeah i think that uh, i read that screenwriter of empire records Carol uh, Heikinen, she actually based Empire Records, the script, on her own experience working at a Tower Records, which I think, uh, although Tower Records was a chain, technically. It was like the little chain that could. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it wasn't like a Virgin Megastore. This movie comes at a time in American indie films that, like, Speaking of kind of Rex Manning and what is cool versus uncool, this movie feels like a created in a lab answer to quote unquote true indies like Slacker and Clerks. So Clerks came on the scene in 1994, was made for like twenty five to thirty five thousand dollars, was this massive hit, had a huge soundtrack took place in a store, took place all over the course of one day and was like very concerned with like pop culture and authenticity, which was like a marker of the Gen X kind of mindset. And so this felt like to some a corporatized, sanitized answer to clerks. And I don't I don't actually think that that is the case. I think that this movie has a ton of things to say all on its own and and excels in in ways that clerks doesn't cinematography for one, acting for another. But this 
is uh, a crown jewel of the like indie slacker comedy that the second it became backed by a big company like Warner Brothers in this case or like um I forget what Miramax that that put out Mallrats the air gets deflated right Gen X was like very attuned to being marketed to and this turned a lot of people off this this movie yeah, I think the irony there is that Warner Brothers backed the movie, but apparently the studio wasn't happy with it, so they didn't promote it at all. Like there was no ad campaign and there was no premiere because it seemed it sounds like hardly anybody was even aware that this movie existed. That um, it, I think it only lasted like a week or two in theaters yeah. and only grossed like. 180,000 in its first week and then by the second week it was practically which is, which out like bad. it was it was practically like a straight to video release. Yeah, so originally Warner Brothers had planned to do a, a wide release of 1200 theaters which is like a huge release back then and then they cut it down to 87 screens. So the movie made its way to whoever was marketing at Warner Brothers and they were essentially like, what the fuck is this? There's no way. And they had such little faith in the movie that they didn't even allow it to make any money as opposed to like 87 theaters is like a laughably small amount of theaters. So yeah, it's weird. I don't, I don't quite understand what would have turned people off so much other than maybe the fact that this movie's message is super anti-corporate. A hundred percent. Well, although (laughs) the loose plot involves, uh, as you said, Rory Cochran's character, Lucas, losing a whole bunch of money. First, though, he makes a whole bunch of money in Atlantic City, then promptly loses it because he, like, ostensibly wants to help his boss, Joe played by Anthony LaPaglia, save the store. Because I think Joe was hoping to buy the store because he's just, he's the manager. He's not the, uh, the owner and the owner of the store is like this guy who like really couldn't give a shit about records. And I think it's like said that his father owns like a toilet factory or company, or I, I don't (laughs) entirely remember, but Joe's boss is like, you know, he, he's this, you know, corporate, you know, whatever guy who really doesn't care about um, the thing that they're the store that he really owns. And it would behoove him financially to sell Empire Records to a music town. And Joe is trying to circumvent this with the money that Lucas ends up taking. And then you know, most of the day after Lucas l- loses all that money is spent with Joe trying to protect Lucas, who whom he you get the sense that he feels like a, a sort of fatherly relationship to. They might even live together. It's a little bit vague what their personal outside of the store relationship. And Joe is trying to hide this huge crime because basically Lucas has stolen the money effectively and that could send him uh, to jail and have him be charged. And so Joe is trying to prevent his boss from finding this out. And all the employees are scrambling to figure out how to save the store that they love. And then in the backdrop, backdrop, because uh, there are a, quite a few subplots, everyone's kind of trying to work through their own personal growth issues. 
Yes. There's a, a moment in Empire Records that always kind of, I wouldn't say confused me, but it was like a layer that did not seem normal, which is when Lucas comes, I guess I understand it now in my old age, because we're probably older than the the age that Joe was supposed to be in that movie. But uh, when <laughs> Lucas comes in, <laughs> when Lucas comes in and tells Joe what happened, that he lost all the money, Joe beats the shit out of him. And then as a 13-year-old or whenever I saw it, I was like, is that a is a is your boss allowed to hit you like that? So now I understand their relationship is more of like a a fatherly one, and especially like a Gen Xer dad or a Gen Xer's idea of a dad is definitely one that like you lose a bunch of money, you get your ass beat. We ha- we also have Robin Tunney, whose name is Deb, who comes to work the day after trying to kill herself. And shaves her head in the bathroom of the store, which felt completely normal to me as a child. That's so funny. So you were 13 when you first saw this movie? I think so. I was between the eight. I definitely didn't see it in the theater. It came out when I was around 10. I was like a couple weeks, a month shy of 10. And so I definitely saw it at like a party. We talked a little bit last episode about like the proliferation of watching cruel intentions at sleepovers you know like we pop in this movie that's kind of transgressive it's for people who are older than we are and we treated empire records the same way my friend matt who i host another podcast with his older sister was like this is what it's like to be an adult she's four years older than we are but she she (laughs) worked at blockbuster at the time she was like feeling so angsty and so yeah i think you know, Jen, shout out to Jenny Reuter, who I think sat us in front of Empire Records when we were p- probably around 12 or 13. That sounds like a really cool friend, older sister. Yeah, Jenny's the best. She teaches history in Florida. Uh, that's awesome. She's doing the Lord's work. The way I came into Empire Records was actually through um, a high school friend who made me a really great mix. Like... The beginning of okay. my freshman year, I think. She just like dropped a bunch of songs. Some of them came from the Empire Records soundtrack. And I listened to this mix constantly. It had like Weezer on it. It had like Oleander on it. Oleander. Mm-hmm. It had a uh, Little Bastard by the Ass Ponies on it, which is on the Empire Records soundtrack. And then I think via that mix that my friend made for me, she might have shown me Empire Records. I might have found Empire Records just via that mix. But it did have that. These, like, even though the kids in the movie, I think um, Ethan Embry's character, he plays Mark, is 15. Mark sucks. Like, or <laughs> Mark sucks. Liv Tyler is only like 17 in real life. And. So these characters, these characters Extremely are only a few years older than than I am, and yet I still watch this movie as well into like older than Joe's character, and I still feel that they are older than me. It's just it's that time is frozen kind of feeling, and oh yeah, it's like I love the coming of ageness of this movie. In addition to like the indie versus corporate, like 
tension. Each character is kind of trying to figure out where they're going to go next. Even though they all have this ostensibly cool after-school job, because I think most of them are either in high school or just out of high school. Yeah. Renee Zellweger's character, Gina, wants to start a band. She wants to sing. She's too afraid. Liv Tyler's character, Corey, she's like the straight-A a uh, high achiever who's going to go to Harvard, but she's miserable because she's basically just, as it comes out, she's been <laughs> on speed in order to achieve these high grades and just never sleep. And her best friend, AJ, played by one of my all-time favorite on screen. I had the biggest crush. I mean, who didn't? But I had it's the, the hair, biggest man. crush. Uh huh. On Johnny Whitworth, who was one of my first celebrity sightings in L.A. Ooh. Yeah, I saw him when I was driving home from work one day. If you didn't have AJ's hair in 1995, you were nobody. Nobody. <laughs> this might be the wrong audience, but Johnny Whitworth still looks great. He's aged beautifully. That's all I'm going to say. Still hot. Still hot. Still super. St- can still get it. Good, good on you, and, Johnny Whitworth. <laughs> so, so, so AJ is, he's an artist and he uh, he has kind of a, a, a light inferiority complex. Doesn't feel like he could achieve more with his art. And he is also in love with his best friend, Liv Tyler. And so there's like a whole subplot about like, will, will they, won't they? And it just takes place over the course of the day. Oh, man. It's funny that the kind of the Rex Manning day, maybe, and maybe this like casts like who I thought I was watching this movie. It's funny that the Rex Manning day has had the staying power it has. Like April 8th is Rex Manning day and people celebrate it and watch the movie. The thing that reminds me of the movie is anytime anything takes place at 137. (laughs) <laughs> which is the time in the movie that AJ is going to tell Liv Tyler that he is in love with her. 137 exactly, Joe. 137 exactly. I wanted to really quickly Oprah. read a quote from one of my favorite writers, Anne Helen Peterson. Uh, she wrote in BuzzFeed in 2014, which was uh, leading up to the 20th anniversary of Empire Records, so around 2014, 2015, you saw like a whole lot of anniversary content around Empire Records. It seemed the movie's depiction of misfit teens and the interactions between them, all of which seemed so pregnant with exceptional meaning that resonated. These characters, a good girl, a slutty girl, a gothy girl, an artist boy, an adorable weirdo, a beatnik, a too cool rocker a hippie stoner, a wannabe, with whom nearly any high schooler could identify or toward whom they could direct their desire. It was, as one crew member pointed out, breakfast club at the record store, but even weirder. But even weirder. So real quick, before we get into talking about the musical side of things, everyone's got their own wrap-up, even Deb, who shaves her head in the 
bathroom of the store like learns that life is worth living fun fact robin tunney who plays deb shaved her head for real in this film obviously it was done in one take because you can't you don't really get multiple bites of that apple and then she went right from empire records to her work on the other 1995 cult classic starring robin tunney the craft but in that movie where she plays like the absolute antithesis of this character she's like the good girl she had to wear a wig for the entire film because of uh shaving her head for deb and then she had to shave her head again every day uh on the set of empire records because the film takes place over the span of one day and her head always had to look freshly shaven (laughs) <laughs> she really rocked it though she she sinead over belly shock me shock me shock me with that deviant behavior oh wow you do know this movie aviv i've seen this movie more times than probably any other movie <laughs> so as rachel mentioned renee zellweger's character who is the tramp let's say she is the kind of foil to live tyler's good girl character desperately wants to be in a band and is too shy to experience that or to sing in front of people and so in order to say damn the man and save the empire the cast of characters have to put on a fundraiser at the end of the movie including renee's first live performance as a singer this just occurred to me but i i love how like the fundraiser only just occurs to them by the end of the movie like they spend the whole day agonizing over what to do to to save empire (laughs) what do we do at the very last minute they're like oh let's just do like a like a a, we'll crowdsource it and then and everything will be fine (laughs) but um it's also kind of the beauty of the movie and and to me like the beauty of 90s movies and and content in general where it's like all of the existential problems in the 90s are like wrapped up in a nice little bow by everyone coming together. Oh yeah. This is a gri- this is a gripe I have. 911 baby. General. Yeah. <laughs> and and you you mentioned the Brady Bunch earlier. This is like the plot of the of a Brady Bunch episode, right? Like, oh, we need $38,000. It looks like the singing contest, the prize is exactly $38,000. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Before we dive into the needle drop in question, uh, Sugar High, with Brene Zellweger's character and Coyote Shivers, I thought it could be good to just kind of do a quick rundown of how great this soundtrack was and is. Yes. And one of my favorite needle drops, which you only really hear briefly in the film, but I think it's soundtracked. The trailer for the film was uh, Jim Blossom's Till I Hear It From You, which they wrote specifically for the film. I think ended up being their first Billboard Top 20 song. Yeah, this song is incredible and and encapsulates like the kind of easy grunge or whatever. It's like a little angsty, grunge. but yeah, right. Call it jangle grunge. Jangle grunge rules. That's a great term for it that also is emblematic of the movie to me too as whenever i hear it on the oldies station now i'm like transported back my god and a few other i mean there are too many great songs here to name really we would take up the entire episode but uh edwin collins a girl like you edwin collins of the of the great orange juice yeah cranberries liar uh, free by the Martinis. You got Crazy Life by Toad the Wet Sprocket. Circle of Friends by Better Than Ezra. 
and just like too many more to name. Are there, do you have any other favorites on the soundtrack that really spoke to you as a teen? Yeah, uh, weirdly. So because there's so, you know, it, it takes place in a record store. So there's a ton of music and a ton of like varieties of, of music, right? The ones that always remind me of this are the, um, the flying lizards. Mm. Yeah, and it's like yeah, an yes, early yeah. new wave band. The songs from '79, and this yeah. this feels very the movie to me, as well as the uh, this is the movie that introduced Guar to 10, 11, 12 year old Aviv. I had no idea what this was, what Guar was, that this was even allowed. That scene definitely freaked 14-year-old Rachel out <laughs> when, <laughs> when I first saw it. I was like, what is this? I don't like it. <laughs> and la- later on, I actually met Guar when I was about 23. I was working at the House of Blues in Boston, and they played, and I almost tripped over o- Odorous Arungus's giant prosthetic dick. Make you rest. <laughs> That's great. So in 2015, in Brooklyn, Rough Trade Brooklyn, also record store slash concert venue, they had like a like a an Empire Records pop up like for its 20th anniversary. I did not go, which I still, which is still one of my major regrets. (laughs) I don't remember why I couldn't go, but for some reason I couldn't go. And Guar apparently was there and like reenacted the scene where Ethan Embry's character is like eaten by the giant worm. <laughs> and I think Ethan Embry was actually there as was as I as I saw friends of mine sharing selfies and stuff on Instagram with like Ethan Embry and um I definitely remember seeing Johnny Whitworth was there and cried into whatever I was eating at the time that I couldn't see this taking place. <laughs> As Rachel previously mentioned, the soundtrack to this movie did better than the movie itself. And that seemed to be a bit of a feature, not a bug. The marketing of film in the 90s was very different than the marketing of films today. We see echoes of it that you know we'll talk about repeatedly on this show. But you had several bites of the apple when it came to indie movies. Like, well, any movie, but specifically indie movies like this because... The producers knew that certain movies would just do better on home video. There are some really famous examples like The Shawshank Redemption, which flopped in its theatrical release and actually made more money on home video. This is kind of a similar case where the ancillary markets, VHS at the time, and a CD soundtrack would kind of support the box office if the box office had been kind of uh, lackluster. I don't think that this was specifically planned like this for Empire Records because the drop to 87 theaters seems like a big fuck you. But yeah, every movie that involved teenagers also involved a really cool, in quotes, soundtrack that every teen had to buy and this kind of started to go out of fashion after the cd burning craze started in like the late 90s and now it's back but we have it with spotify playlists and official licensed remix remastered versions of things like 
separate ways the journey song for Stranger Things. It just occurred to me that there are so many soundtracks, movie soundtracks that really took on a life of their own, particularly in the 90s. And for the moment, the only one I can really think of that kind of stood out well after the 90s concluded is the Garden State soundtrack. The Garden State soundtrack was like the last great gasp of, of oh, I'm going to make this movie's soundtrack my entire personality. I would also be <laughs> remiss to say that uh, the best example of this was not a movie geared toward teens, but The Bodyguard. The Bodyguard soundtrack is the best-selling soundtrack of all time, specifically, I think, because it has Whitney Houston's I Will Always Love You, the cover of the Dolly Parton song, as well as I'm Every Woman, the Shaka Khan song, on it. And I think it sold something like 40 million. It's like laughably, yeah, 45 million copies worldwide. Just like stupid stupid popular and i think that that was one of the big starting points for oh we have a soundtrack tie-in but it went to reality bites and there will be episodes on all these songs they're reinventions of my of my sharona clerks uh mall rats to lesser extent this movie all the way up to like garden state R.I.P. Is is this the right time to tell you that i've never seen the bodyguard i have also never seen the bodyguard (laughs) <laughs> it's on Netflix. We're going to have to change that. It's on Netflix. The Bodyguard's a weird one because it itself is a remake, I think. I think so. I think I think you're right. Yeah. It spawned the single most popular cover song of all time and the best-selling soundtrack album of all time. We got to do an episode on I Will Always Love You. It's such a, it's, uh, such a bizarre it's our story. now. Yeah. I've already been planning to watch it, so you can we you can come downstairs and we'll watch it together. Oh, killer! Okay, great. Um, well, I think now's probably a good time to hone in on Sugar High, standout denouement. Is that the right? Yeah, I mean, there are several songs in Empire Records that are quote unquote performed, including the Rex Manning song "Say No More, Mona More," um, but. The most diegetic of all of them comes when Coyote Shivers performs on the roof of Empire Records to cap off the fundraiser, and Coyote Shivers uh, insists with no rehearsal whatsoever that Renee Zellweger take the mic. You! Take the lead! What? Go on, Gina! Take it! Do you want to talk a little bit about who Coyote Shivers is? So Coyote Shivers is is one of those artists that is a band and also just one person. And weirdly, his name is Francis Shivers. That's kind of an amazing name. It's pretty good. And so and so Francis Coyote Shivers is in the movie. He plays a kind of an ancillary character named Burko, and he's like f- very good friends with Robin Tunney's deb but he seemed to be just kind of like they're actually in a relationship um oh i think you're right 
Yeah, they're in a relationship. Their characters are together, but they are going through something. Robin Tunney's character is having suicidal ideations and um, she's trying to figure out how to deal with that. And, and Burko is kind of trying to figure out how to support her. But um, he is ancillary. Yeah. His character is very on the side. And specifically so that he can play this role at the end of, you know, the guy who sings the song. You might recognize his music from the TV show The Kids in the Hall. Francis, Shivers, co-produced the song Having an Average Weekend. And the band was called Shadowy Men on a Shadowy Planet. And that's what became the theme song to the TV show The Kids in the Hall. And he also was an actor and appeared not only in Empire Records, but in one of my all-time favorite 90s pieces of garbage, Johnny Mnemonic, (laughs) in which Keanu Reeves has like a hard drive installed in his brain. It's amazing. He he only did three (laughs) records over the course of eight years. And acted in just like a handful of movies and then kind of disappeared from the spotlight or so we were led to believe unfortunately that's not the case this is where we include the uh editor's note that coyote shivers despite doing some i've seen him do some promo around um like anniversary tributes for empire records but his personal life is as many musicians tend to be. I don't want to speak too broadly, but Shivers has kind of a spotty personal life. He was married to NCIS star Polly Perrette from 2000 to 2006, after which she alleged abuse from Shivers. Uh, Also, Shivers' ex-girlfriend Angela Garber alleged that he had had a pattern of uh, physical, sexual, and psychological abuse, stalking, legal harassment, all the best stuff. And um, yeah, in 2008, and this is where I learned a new legal term yesterday, <laughs> I was researching, the uh, LA County Superior Court actually declared Shivers a uh, vexatious litigant, um, which Vacious, basically yeah. means that like, People who are deemed those things uh, are like anytime they file something like a restraining order like against a person, like a civil suit, they are basically just thrown out and not taken seriously by the court whatsoever. It's like it's like considered an abuse of the judicial process and it can result in sanctions against the offender. So that's fun. Yeah, it's what you do when someone keeps filing frivolous lawsuits almost compulsively. These accusations also coincided with the end of Francis's acting career. His last role was in The Boys and Girls Guide to Getting Down, which, you know, not ideal for someone who is accused of this stuff. And his last musical, his last music album was called Gives It to You Twice, which was in 2004. So once again, like he just cannot stop telling on himself. <laughs> it's yeah, it seems like Coyote Shivers's career for the last 18 to or so years has been stalled as a result of his uh accusation and and probably accurate depictions of of harassment and 
psychological abuse and stuff, which is really upsetting. You know, Um, but I didn't know this. You have to take this because this blew my mind when I learned this. So fun fact, Coyote Shivers at the time of uh, filming Empire Records was married to Liv Tyler's mother, B.B. Buell at the time and so technically that made him tyler's stepdad which is kind of a giant mind fuck yeah don't like that especially because i believe he was only like a few years older than her so if she was 17 i read that he was 12 years her senior yeah like well into his 20s exactly and and i believe about in the in between the ages of Bibi Buell and Liv Tyler, like smack dab in between, so that's that's a, that is kind of a mind fuck. I don't, I especially knowing kind of his trajectory for later, don't love it. <laughs> Again, with the telling on himself. The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. I also didn't know this, but apparently producers wanted Billy Joe Armstrong from Green Day for this role, uh, but his touring schedule wouldn't allow for it. And I would have loved to see this, by the way, uh, because I, in addition to being obsessed with Empire Records, was obsessed with Green Day. So, okay, here's here's the alternate universe question. What song do they sing on the roof of Empire Records if Billy Joe Armstrong plays Burko instead of Coyote Shivers? I'd like to think that Billy would have written a song specifically for the movie, but you could really pick any song off of Dookie, and it would be tonally appropriate, given all of the uh, ennui. so. Yeah, and they had just, you know... during the filming of this movie, they would have just come off of their like Woodstock '94 thing. So, like maybe when I come around or Basket Case or Welcome to Paradise. Mm. 
I was going to say, actually, I'm glad you said when I come around, because that was kind of like the first thing that I thought when you posed the question. Yeah, I think that's... It is, I guess, generally kind of a punk song, but it's more like relaxed and it's more of a like a jangle punk. Not as not as in your face. It's more mid-tempo and that matches the tone of a lot of the songs. Yeah, I would be remiss... Because we're talking about 1995 indie comedies that did horribly with amazing soundtracks. And I have to shout out my good friend and former roommate Jim McDevitt and his all-time favorite movie, Angus, which Green Day does provide the soundtrack for. And and that's like the only official release of JAR, of J-A-R, is on. I've also never seen Angus. It is Cover Your Ears, Jim. Not great. I mean, it's fine. It is one of those ones that people just like latch on to and, and never let go. And the first song on the soundtrack is Green Day's J.A.R. That's another one I'm going to have to watch. Yeah, it's, cl- it's classic. Classic 90s. Why do you think that this scene with uh, Coyote Shivers and Renee Zellweger's character works so well? Like, And can I point out really quickly that it used to bother me when I was younger watching this scene because I, I couldn't see when they're playing. They're playing on the roof of Empire Records. It's this big triumphant moment. Mm-hmm. They've saved the spoiler alert. They've they've damned the nan and they've saved the empire with a with a crowdfunding event. But um, it used to bother me that I couldn't see any drums behind them. It just seemed like the two of them. I, like, where's yes. the rest of the band? <laughs> I think that they're there. I think that they are there. Mm-hmm. Just we don't have coverage of them. Why is the song perfect for this moment? That's the question, right? Yes. And I think to your point of the unrealism, right? It bothered you that you couldn't see the rest of the band. You couldn't see the drums. I definitely remember seeing microphones. I think what makes it kind of magic is all of the things that are unrealistic about it. So I mentioned kind of offhand earlier that like they have not rehearsed this. She's just kind of there and she's singing back up, which I think she's like fine with. Right. And then he asks her in the middle of the song to take the lead. So like that would never in a trillion years happen. But even in the kind of the construction of the song, and this is the thing that always bothered me about this, is the the studio version of this song doesn't have Renee Zellweger's backup parts. So you'll hear that Renee's part is like conspicuously missing, and there's an I think it's like a double edged sword. There's enough space in there that it really when she comes in and sings in the movie is like very, very gratifying. And now I can't listen to the regular song without it feeling super empty. What's funny is, too, about those two songs, like the studio version that appears on the soundtrack versus what you hear in the movie with Gina's verse is that the lyrics are markedly different the studio version has some like much more fucked up lyrics when i lick between your thighs (laughs) yeah um some coyote Coyote. i'm your lawyer now (laughs) shut the fuck up 
Stop stop doing <laughs> and, this. And, and, and what is it in the film? Um, I feel so funny deep inside when I kiss myself goodbye or when I kiss you goodbye. Something. I think that that also happens in the, rec- in the studio version of the song, but only once. Yeah. And then and it starts out. Uh, Yikes. The studio Yikes, version guy. is, they all said she's just another groupie slut, but I said you're anything but. Oh, that's nice. Thanks, Coyote. And uh, in the film, it's uh, they all say life's just another, a bowl of cherries, but sometimes it seems like anything but. Just rhyming but and but. The poet of our time. <laughs> yeah, I think also that is a, sadly, a really common feature of many of these songs that were popular in the 90s where you take a look at the lyrics and you're like, wait a minute. Even my Sharona, which had a huge part in Reality Bites, which was, of course, a 70s song by The Knack that was like re-released, is like very, very much about statutory rape. Good times. Did, yeah. did you not know this? Did I did I? No, I think I knew that. I mean, um, no, I'm pretty sure I knew. It. Well, I, I, I could have guessed to be to TBH because I, I write about music for a living and it's just like every song that I loved um, from 30, 40 years back and, and even only 20 years back is like that it has it has the, the the lowest common denominator of subject matter. So I knew my Sharona was about something less than wholesome. I just assumed. I just I don't think I knew specifically that it was about statutory rape though. I mean he it's about him liking very young girls, unfortunately. But I think the sanitized version of there's like nothing that we lose from the original Sugar High to the movie version that like, oh man, I really miss those like vague references to oral sex. And I think also uh, this was really she, this was really Re- Renee Zellweger singing. She can sing. She is a good singer. Which we learned a little later on when she won an Oscar for playing Judy Garland. Oh yeah, M- much more recently. I did not see the Judy. Yeah, Garland within the movie. last like three years. It's very good. I don't like biopics, and it's very good. Wow, that that's really high praise from you. Yeah, I know you're not a biopic yeah, I person. Know. I think basically all biopics play out like a uh, walk hard a Dewey Cox story, but as Judy Garland, Renee Zellweger is like unrecognizable. Oh, wow. Okay, I'll add that to my list. Last fun fact Renee Zellweger apparently was dating Rory Cochran at the time, and uh, who plays Lucas, and apparently they were living together as a couple. So says Coyote Shivers in uh, an interview he did with Consequence of Sound in 2015. So we had Burko is, is Liv Tyler's, Corey's stepdad, and Lucas and Gina, is that her name? Mm-hmm. Are together. Interesting. As Coyote told Consequence of Sound in 2015, he kind of like go- went into how the original version of the song was on the soundtrack but didn't make its way into the movie and how and he said the record company did not want the song on the soundtrack because it wasn't a band that they owned so i guess so that sounds like like what uh coyote shivers was not signed to what like warner Warner brothers Records. records yeah yeah and therefore was like weird about that song appearing on the soundtrack also, to be totally honest, Coyote Shivers is not the Gin Blossoms and is not 
you know, better than Ezra. And so if it's between Coyote Shivers and, you know, an Evan Dando song, they're going to cut Coyote Shivers because they don't get butts in the record stores. And that's just like the unfortunate truth of it, even though the song plays such a massive role in the plot of the movie. Yeah. Ultimately, Sugar High is, I mean, despite the soundtrack of Empire Records kind of living on its own, um, Coyote Shivers Sugar High like is inextricably linked with the movie Empire Records in a way that even Till I Hear It From You is not. Even though Till I Hear It From You was was written for the movie. Yes. But that probably just lends a lot a lot of credence to Gin Blossoms being the Gin Blossoms and having many hits over the course of uh, like a five year span and uh, Coyote Shivers. Well, can you name another Coyote Shivers song? Certainly not. Yeah. So <laughs> sorry to Coyote Shivers. He remains a cult figure in a cult classic movie and sometimes that just kind of is what it is and ultimately though this scene is like i said earlier it's it's like a triumphant moment for the characters but really more for Brene's elwager's character because you get the sense that now that she's like conquered her fear and everything's going to be okay with the the store that she works at empire records and you get the sense that she's going to go on from here and like form her own band, maybe join Coyote Shiver's band. But you see like her character's trajectory taking off and she's going to have a future like just beyond working at the record store. And I think that that speaks a little bit to why Coyote Shivers was a better casting than Billy Joe Armstrong, who may have kind of upstaged her in his own level of fame. Right. Green Day was already pretty big at the time. And so Coyote Shivers could disappear into the rest of the movie. How did he wind up in the movie in the first place, though? How'd they find him? Yeah, so he talked about that. And um, he talked about how the casting agent, they they wanted a real musician, not an actor playing a musician. And then he kind of goes into talking about how they wanted Billy Joe. So they got me instead, which is a funny thing, because I've done a couple of movies where they wanted someone else. He's says uh, in Dirty Love with Jenny McCarthy and Carmen Electra, I did a cameo as the DJ at a fashion show that was originally Dave Navarro, and then he couldn't make it, so they called me. <laughs> and, the <laughs> and then he talked about how he actually lied about his age to get the role of Burko. He said, I lied about my age and said I was a teenager because that's what they were aiming for. And I looked young anyway. They had no idea when they cast me that I was related to Liv Tyler. When they found out, I almost lost the gig because it exposed the fact that I was well into my 20s. That coincidence also happened with a few other people on the film. Renee Zellweger and Rory Cochran were living together as a couple, but they were cast completely independently. Uh, So were others Hmm. in the crew, etc., it was interesting on the first day when we were all introduced to each other. It ended up being like a small family living on the beach in North Carolina while we filmed. So that sounds fun. Reading retrospectives, I've seen some like oral histories of Empire Records in recent years, and it really does sound like one of those magical ensemble movies. If you've ever read anything about like 10 Things I Hate About You, you get the sense that 
the ensemble cast really had a good time hanging out together. Yeah. And that and that chemistry is like reflected in the film. And it sounds like Empire Records was uh, a very similar vibe collectively. But Coyote Shivers doesn't <laughs> a, a wordsmith that he is. Coyote Shivers doesn't have entirely positive things to say about the use of his biggest song in the biggest movie that it ever appeared in. Oh yeah. Because he was asked in the same interview why wasn't the Renee version of Sugar High on the soundtrack? Because clearly, like I mentioned, I cannot hear the regular version, the studio version, without wanting Renee's part. Yeah, he says the Gina part was invented because the character in the movie gets up and sings. The lyrics she sings are insipid as fuck because they're added after the fact with no real purpose other than an excuse for her to sing. The melody, however, admittedly did turn into its own hook. Uh, Also, the version on the soundtrack was not supposed to be the released version. And then he goes on to talk about why that happened. But yeah, he he didn't have the the kindest words for uh, how this song, as it is best known, turned out. Yeah, and unfortunately, like, I, I don't mean to like turn a mirror on you, Coyote, but like the lyrics that Gina sings, which are gotta have it, really need it to get by, are insipid as fuck, but like compared to what? The lyrics <laughs> of your song are not necessarily Shakespeare, my friend. And I think truly this is like a perfect example. This song is a perfect example of how the right placement in a movie can make the movie and the song better than the sum of its parts, right? Because this is the climactic kind of cathartic moment of the movie that couldn't, I don't think, be done with any other song. And I don't think the song would have fit in any other movie. And to, you know, bite the hand that feeds you in that way is a little, well, I don't know, man. Yeah, well, I mean, I I think Coyote's trajectory does speak for itself. And this is, I think, part one of a million-part series where we explore the best needle drops of, like, these 90s teen movies. So we've mentioned a handful of movies kind of in passing comparatively to this, including Clerks, Angus, Mallrats, The Bodyguard, which is not really a teen movie, Garden State, that will all kind of get their own treatment on in sync but as for coyote shivers and empire records i think this is where our story comes to a close i want to kiss myself goodbye (laughs) so thank you all for listening thank you rachel for doing all this research on the movie that you've seen two million times did you even have to look anything up or did you do all this from memory so I did not rewatch the movie this time because it is not actually available for free on any of the streaming services that I currently subscribe to. So I went off of like the everything plot related by memory. <laughs> that being said, I did a whole bunch of research because I, I don't always trust my memory when it comes to uh, hard facts. Well, thank you. Thank you for doing that work. I've explored the deepest caverns of my mind. <laughs> <laughs> of your mind? Thanks for listening. Tune in next week when we do this all again with a different needle drop. And until then, you can follow us and interact with us on social media. We're at the InSync Pod on all of those things. Instagram, Twitter for the time being at least, and TikTok. And until then, 
I'm Aviv Rubenstein. I'm Rachel Brodsky. Saying, Damn the man. My name's not fucking Warren. <laughs> Save the Empire. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.